And actually, that's a really good way of phrasing it, because I think what's so fascinating about human learning, and this is really what marks not just humans, but I, I would say broadly sort of generalist species, is that we seem to be able to actually define our own cost functions. just heard a little sound bite from my interview today with Blake Richards. Thank you, uh, Paul Middlebrooks, for giving me that idea. I've been watching his podcast. It's called Brain Inspired. If you like our podcast, you should give his a shot, braininspired.co. Welcome to the show. This is the Nementa on Intelligence podcast, and today we're going to have another interview with a neuroscientist. So stay tuned, and we will get right into it. All right, welcome to another episode of Interview with a Neuroscientist. I'm Matt Taylor with Numenta, and today I'm really excited to have uh, Dr. Blake Richards here with us. He's an associate fellow of the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. Hello, Blake. Hi, Matt. Great to have you here. Um, I've been following your work for a while, and uh, I'm interested in the ideas you are bringing to the field. Uh, as an observer of like neuro Twitter and the neuroscience community for the past couple of years, I feel like you're you're part of this sort of new new wave of, of neuroscientists coming up with some new ideas, and not just about the science, but also about processes and protocols. And how do you think the field is changing right now? Yeah, that's a good question because it definitely feels like it's changing and. It's not always easy to put one's finger on exactly what is changing. I think the way that I would articulate what's happening right now is that we are actually seeing neuroscience morph, at least parts of neuroscience, morph into something that's almost more akin to what cognitive science was back in the day. That is a, a truly interdisciplinary uh, field of research that incorporates not only the you know components of biology that are relevant to understanding how brain cells communicate with one another, but also components of computer science and philosophy and psychology in order to try to get a grasp of what we might call sort of general principles of intelligence and general principles of behavior uh, that are important for understanding the ways in which any agent, whether an animal or in fact an artificial agent works. And that's quite different from what neuroscience was when I started as a PhD student, uh, you know, a little over a decade ago, where it was really more kind of a, a, a sub-branch of biology and with a, with a bit of psychology thrown in occasionally. So definitely it's broadening a lot, it seems. One yes. Point. And, and you think that's uh, because like to understand the general principles of the brain, you have to you have to think broader than just to the molecular biology level, right? That's right, exactly. I think that's part of it. And I think it's also a result of the realization more broadly in in biology altogether that it's biological systems are so complex and their operations are so non-trivial yes. <laughs> that you you really have to bring to bear any tool that you can to understand them. And it's it's not really viable to simply, like I think what, what the practice was in neuroscience for many years and what some people still do to some extent is, is what I call, um, you know, neuro stamp collecting, where you basically just 
try to get as many facts about the brain and its operations on a biological level as possible. And there's this this hope that, you know, the more facts we accumulate, at some point we have something like an understanding of the brain of the brain. But you know, um, Daniel Wolpert, a uh, researcher who was at uh, Cambridge, I think he's moved to Columbia now, he had a great bit about this uh, that he gives in his talk sometimes. So there's a very famous no-science textbook uh, by um, uh, Kandel and, and a few others called Principles of Neural Science. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the textbook that many of us receive when we first start in the field. Um, and principles of neuroscientists, so, so Daniel Wolpert has this plot where he shows that the number of pages of the principles of neuroscience keeps increasing every year after year, according to the linear function. Right. <laughs> and he, he points out that, like, if we were actually uncovering principles of neuroscience, neuroscience presumably the book wouldn't have to keep growing, right? right? Like, it's growing because all it is at this point in time is an accumulation of potentially unrelated facts about the brain. So what people are starting to desire and why we're seeing this shift towards broader ways of thinking about the brain is something more like true principles. And, And the way that Daniel Wolpert puts it is, you know, we know we'll be successful in neuroscience in the coming decades if we can start to actually shrink the number of pages in the principles of neuroscience textbook. Right. That makes sense. When I'm, I'm reading a neuroscience paper, because I sometimes read neuroscience papers because I try, want to try and understand all of the, the, the real biology behind the theory. And there's so many ways you can just go down rabbit holes and, and be lost forever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can spend your whole career studying this one particular aspect of, of intelligence. That's right. It's, it's that's amazing. Right. Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And that's what many people have done in the past and historically is you'd kind of pick your specialized and your particular circuit and you would study the hell out of it. And so you would be the expert on, you know, the synaptic physiology of the Schaefer collaterals in the hippocampus or something like that. And um, that, you know, uh, that made sense in some ways in terms of like, that was a good way to like, like, I think the impulse behind it was a good one. The idea being that you really want to fully understand the systems and, you know, these are complicated systems. So why not take decades to study this one little circuit? But yeah, if if you don't actually end up bringing that to to unite with other things that we're learning about the brain and with broader principles that we might derive from artificial intelligence or psychology, then you know uh, how can you actually say that you've gained an understanding of the brain beyond just the stamp collecting, as I say? Right. We, we've got to put the thing, the facts together in some cohesive That's theory right. about how it all works. All the things work. Exactly. And that's in some ways the hardest thing, you know, at the end. (laughs) And it involves imagination. It involves theorizing, you know. That's right. Exactly. And I think it's something which many neuroscientists are uncomfortable with. And it's why sometimes we see some pushback against this slightly new direction in in neuroscience. Um, Because some people are uncomfortable with the idea that we are going to... Basically, because part of what is required to develop a kind of cohesive, broader picture of 
how the brain is working is occasionally not incorporating certain biological facts into the ways that you're thinking about something because there's just too many to to wrap your head around right. and to make it all work. And I, I think that makes some people uncomfortable because it means that occasionally we're ignoring some components of the biology that we know exist, even though, uh, you know, we, we, we know it's true. We, we're kind of like, well, we're not going to think about that for our broader model right now. Right. And, and that's something not everyone's comfortable with. Maybe we can't explain it. We know something like this is happening and we might know why it needs to happen, but not how. Right. Yes. Uh, so it, I'm afraid of getting too deep here, but you're a doctor of philosophy, so why not? <laughs> yeah. I like to talk about reality, especially how it applies to artificial intelligence as, you know, the world perceives uh -huh. AI right now. Um, yes. And so I love this idea that, that Max Teg Tegmark introduced me to of this of an external reality that just exists. It just is. It's sort of like the ground truth. It, what, it's what's out there. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. all of us intelligent beings have an internal reality, which is really just a model based on our experience with yep. reality, what we think it's like. Um, and they're yep. all sort of wrong and distorted. You know, it's just our, it's our sensory perception over time of what we think is out there. And in order for our, us to communicate with each other, we have to establish sort of a consensus, a, a reality where we can share ideas and we can say red and you know what I mean. And I can say two plus two equals four. And we know what that means. You know, and that's sort of like all yeah. of our, <laughs> our accumulated knowledge is in this consensus reality. And when you yep. talk about AI, I mean, if we're going to create intelligence sort of in our image, if we're if we're trying to learn how the brain works and we think we can turn around and reverse engineer it and create something like that, it it's, it goes against this idea that uh, some people uh, want to make explainable AI. They, they want to know, you know, exactly why right. an AI made a decision. And that always bothers yeah. me because from that, from the perspective of biology, we can't do that with biology. So how can we expect right. to do that with you know machine intelligence in the same way? Quite. Yes, I agree. Um, that's a really good point, and I, I, I think this the the complaint that current deep learning systems in AI are uninterpretable or unexplainable is certainly a funny one whenever it comes from neuroscientists, right. because I am personally completely convinced that the brain is probably equally uninterpretable and unexplainable. <laughs> um, certainly, you know, I think. Uh, Conrad Kerting, uh, a neuroscientist at uh, UPenn, uh, articulates this well. You know, when you when you actually go looking for, you know, oh, does the brain respond to this stimulus? Does the brain respond to this stimulus, etc.? Basically, you can find almost anything you want in almost any brain region if you look hard enough. Right, right. And <laughs> interpreting that is almost impossible. And arguably, the only way to interpret it is to come back to principles of optimization in the same way that, you know, we can, you know, it's always so funny when people say that we can't understand deep nets. We do understand them. Mm -hmm. We understand that they're optimizing on particular loss functions. We understand the learning algorithms that enable them to optimize in that way. And so we can say very clearly why they've developed the representations they've developed. We just can't articulate exactly what they're solution is to the problem in human readable format. Right. And it's entirely possible that the brain is the same way, either as a result of evolutionary optimization or learning during an individual's lifetime. The specific 
wiring of our neural circuits that lets us do the things that we do may or may not be human interpretable. And there's no reason to expect that it would be really. So why would we expect the same for deep neural networks? And something uh, uh, Jonathan Michael said, uh, he was he was on, on the program a while back, and I asked him, what is it to grab a cup? Because he studies mo- motor commands and, and monkeys. And he's like, what is that? That motion to grab a cup, that representation of grabbing a cup, how do you come up with that? And his answer is basically, well, you, you bring together every time you've ever grabbed a cup and you're in every joint experience you've ever had in your entire life, and that's what it is. How do you convey that to another person? That's sort of the, the right. level of information we're trying to capture. Right. Quite. Quite. Um, yeah. And I think that's, you know, the the difficulty with all this stuff is that there aren't actually simple, easy to verbalize ways of, you know, describing what it is to, to pick up a cup or what it is to successfully navigate somewhere or what it is to successfully perceive an object you know, there there are very abstract mathematical descriptions that we can give, but that's not what many people who are complaining about the lack of interpretability are looking for. What they want is a simple few sentence description of what's going on. And that just might not exist. Well, maybe it will exist in a consensus reality that we create with these intelligence systems over time. Yeah, possibly. And so I think that what's interesting, what, what you're saying that way, which is interesting, is that arguably, um, you know, part of what happens with human beings is that we make some of our actions interpretable, quote unquote, by virtue of the stories that we tell each other about why we did something or other. Right. Right. And, uh, and, and I think often the funny thing is, is that these things are false. Like one of the things that we know, um, that that there's some evidence for research wise is that, you know, we will kind of generate post hoc explanations for our actions, even though the experiment, the experimentalist knows that they've manipulated you in such and such a way. And, um, the fact is that I suspect that's happening constantly. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, we are often engaged in various behaviors. The ultimate reasons for why we do the things we do might be almost completely unexplainable, but we tell each other these post hoc stories and then that becomes our shared reality. Yes. So, you know, <laughs> I went to the store and whatever, uh, bought some ice cream because I was stress eating, quote unquote, but like <laughs> right. the, the, the exact like computations behind that are surely far more, far less interpretable rather than I was stress eating. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, which is an interesting segue into what, the next thing I wanted to talk about, which was, uh, cost functions or loss functions. I don't know why stress eating, yeah. but you know, that's sort of, uh, <laughs> that's, that's fulfilling a need in your brain somewhere. <laughs> And yes, quite. We have had discussions on Twitter about this, and but uh, but I think there's some in my audience that may not be familiar with the term. Could you maybe give it a thirty thousand foot definition? What is a loss function? Sure. So a loss function is just a way of quantifying learning. So when we talk about learning, necessarily learning implies some kind of normative improvement, right? right. If you are learning, you're getting better at something. And if you want to quantify your getting better at something, then you need to identify some number, some function that is a measurement of how good you currently are at whatever it is you're trying to learn. Hmm. And 
the, the, the word we use in machine learning to describe these functions are loss functions or cost functions. And so then learning can be defined as anything which reduces a loss function over time. Right. So I'm, uh, I have a background in software engineering, so I think I can think of this as a function that takes input and gives an output. So in this That's example, right. what would the example of that input be? And the, out, the output would be, you know, how good it is, right? That's right. Exactly. So the input would be the current settings for the agent. So in the case of a neural network, it would be the current synaptic weights for the agent. And the output is this measurement of how good is that. Now, can, I, can we abstract that even further? I like to think about video games. Uh, obviously, there's, we're applying AI to a lot of video games. If you think about a, mm -hmm. a, lost, a, a cost function for Pong, like for an AI player, could I think mm -hmm. of that as like all the input being the location of the ball as it moves and then, and then the loss function judging how well the paddle, whether the paddle prevents the ball from going past it or not? Roughly, but I think the way we would probably approach it in an actual like AI system is one step more of abstraction. So the input would be the current... Uh, policy, as it were, which is the word we use, that is to say the current set of actions that you would select as a Pong player based upon the screen that you're provided. Oh, so like all possible things you could you might do. Exactly. Ah. All possible things you might do in response to all possible inputs. Ah. And then the output would be a measurement of the average score that you would get in the game. And so in this case, it's, a, it's what we'd call, um, rather than a loss function, it's the inverse of our loss function. We want to increase our score. Right, right. So um, you, you want to see that improve over time. It's like an optimization function or something. That's right, an optimization function, precisely. Right. Um, so a more, again, I keep thinking about video games. Could, could I also think about this in terms of behavior? Like if I'm playing Mario Kart or pole position, depending on how old you are, um, and I'm controlling a car, can I even define that environment with a loss function? If, my, if, I'm, if I want to say I want to stay on the road, I want to go around the track as fast as possible, and I want, don't want to hit things, is, that, is, that this, is, this, is this working in that scene too? Yep, exactly. So again, you know, the, the way that we approach it in machine learning um, is in this very sort of high level view where you say, okay, so for all possible situations in this car game, uh, what actions would you take at this point in time? And then you would get some score based upon that, such that your score would go down if you ever drove off the road and it would go up for, you know, how rapidly you were able to go around the track or whatever. And that is your loss function then. In your brain, though, um, I can imagine yeah. evolution provides loss functions over a long period of time, you know, like behaviors that, right. that expose themselves in order to help the animal survive, right? Those are yeah. encoded in genes, and those are going to be stored, well, I mean, they're going to be expressed in older parts of the brain. Is that right? Well, so when we talk about the loss functions that govern uh, evolution, 
what's interesting there is is effectively what we're talking about the, the central loss function for evolution of course is the likelihood that your genes will propagate to the next generation right of course. and the input to that loss function so that's the output of the loss function is what's the likelihood that your genes will propagate to the next generation the input to that loss function is effectively your current physiological state Mm. And evolution is about shaping your physiology in order to maximize the probability that you're going to propagate your genes to the next generation. Right. Um, so that specific loss function itself isn't encoded in your DNA, but your DNA has ultimately been shaped by this process of optimization on this loss function over time. So the, the example I've been thinking of, I'm trying not to be crude, but all biological systems have to excrete waste. And there's behaviors right. in animals to excrete waste where you're not collecting food. You know, that's something I think that, is that something that's at that low, those low levels of the brain or is that something that you think is learned? Right. Well, so, okay. So then we, when we start talking about, um, the intersection between the sort of learning that is evolution, because you can view evolution as a type of learning, because right, it is right. this optimization. A very process. slow type of learning. <laughs> a very slow type of learning. That's right. And a type of learning that doesn't occur in an individual, but instead occurs in a population. Exactly. Yeah. So um, evolution is this very slow learning that occurs over a population. And then within all of our brains, we also have learning algorithms that help uh, us as individuals to learn. Right. And what I think is interesting is that um, part of what has probably happened over the course of evolution is that one of the things that that came out of our evolution was that it was beneficial from the evolutionary cost function for our brains to also optimize on some other cost functions. Ah, uh, yeah. And sometimes, you know, our behaviors can seem a little bit weird with respect to our survival because even though it might have been beneficial in the long run for us to be optimizing on these other cost functions internally, at the end of the day, though they might not always agree with the evolutionary cost function. Right. And so the example I always give that way is with drug addiction, right? Mm -hmm. So in, in all likelihood, we think that, you know, the brain seems to have a cost function that is some kind of reward maximization cost function, right? Yeah. You as an animal are going to do stuff that uh, helps uh, you to maximize the probability of obtaining rewards. And the difficulty then, of course, is that if you take something that's very basically intrinsically rewarding, like heroin, yeah. that cost function might induce in you behavior to just do whatever you can to get as much heroin as possible, even though that's not beneficial for the evolutionary cost function of you propagating your genes to the next generation. It's sort of like shorting a circuit. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. A sort of short circuit. Exactly. And, you know, that's not to say that that, that you didn't evolve that reward maximization cost function 
for evolutionary purposes, it did, because on the African savanna, that was probably a pretty good cost function to be optimizing on. Uh, but uh, yeah, for for a modern human, maybe not so much. There's certainly examples of us humans in enhancing our evolved cost functions. If we use the example of, you know, don't, don't yeah. excrete where you eat, uh, at some point yeah. we, we decided it would be good if we started washing during that process, which increased yeah. our, our lifespans considerably. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and and we learned that behavior. I mean, it's almost like these cost functions, once they emerge, they, 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 they're memes. They turn into memes. Yes, right, right. And actually, that's a really good way of phrasing it, because I think what's so fascinating about human learning, and this is really what marks not just humans, but I, I would say broadly sort of generalist species, is that we seem to be able to actually define our own cost functions. Right. So, you know, uh, for example, uh, you know, some people will just get obsessed about getting really good at particular random tasks, right? Like they, they will, they will decide that they really want to be an expert on, I don't know, different types of logger or something like that. And it's not immediately clear what cost function they're optimizing on besides this arbitrary one of being able to distinguish different types of logger, (laughs) but they do it. Right. And so, so we seem to have this ability to define our own cost functions in a way that, that makes us incredibly flexible as an animal. Um, and which again can sometimes seem to go against our evolution, uh, but probably in its origins was beneficial for our ancestors somehow. Well, we're, we're pretty much making it up as we go along at this point, you know, we're defining our own cost functions, uh, doing whatever we want. I mean, performance art is, is a beautiful thing to behold when it's done right. And it's a cost function. Someone's defining that cost function. And, and, and if it's appealing to the general public, they, they get accolades for it. Uh, it's, That's right. I mean, yeah. they're basically defining beauty but with one of these cost functions. It's amazing. Yes. That's right. And yeah, and, and so th- actually to come back to your mimetic point, I suppose I, I got slightly off track there. What I think is interesting about your point that way is that we also, and this ties back to your, your point about a sort of shared reality, arguably what happens in human society is that we develop joint shared cost functions. Right. So, you know, we all decide that what we really want is, you know, whatever, like uh, particular bassy house music or particular, as you say, like performance art with certain characteristics right, that are kind of hard to define. Uh, type of politics or whatever. Yes, that's right. Exactly. And so that then becomes the thing that we're all optimizing on um, because we have, we're, we're obsessed with these sorts of shared mimetic goals that, that we develop. Wow. All right. Well, I didn't know how deep we we're going to go, but we went pretty deep. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, well, let's talk about deep learning. We haven't touched on that really uh, a whole lot yet, but you've done a lot of work in deep learning. Um, my audience may not be the most proficient in this subject. I think I think uh, you know the HTM audience is um, more towards the the neuroscience and the hobbyists and and the engineers. Um, but so maybe you could talk about backpropagation in a simple term. Can you define backpropagation for us, and why doesn't it work biologically? Because that's one question. It'd be great to explain. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'll I'll start by just defining deep learning. Uh, so 
deep learning is a particular approach in machine learning that has two basic tenets. The first is that you should try to have minimal intervention from the programmer, meaning you should hardwire as little as possible and have the system learn as much as possible. Right. So this is in contrast to more traditional approaches to artificial intelligence, which are sometimes referred to as good old-fashioned AI or GoFi. Sure, like expert systems and very finely tuned applications. That's right. That's right. Where you as the programmer say, okay, computer, here's the way I want you to act. Here's the logical chain of reasoning that I want you to engage in. Here's your understanding of the world as programmed by me. Go behave intelligently, please. The the deep learning philosophy says, no, you as the programmer should do as little hardwiring as possible. And you should basically just focus on the development of learning algorithms that allow your agent to use the data that you provide it to figure out for itself how to behave exactly. Or, yeah, a noble endeavor, for sure. Yeah. So then the second tenet of deep learning, which uh, distinguishes it from, quote unquote, shallow learning, is the idea that what you want to do is not only to, to learn as much as possible, but to also have a what we'd call a hierarchical system where you process data in a series of stages or modules and you also ensure that your learning algorithm is adapting every one of those stages. Mm-hmm. So the analogy that deep learning people were ultimately building off of that they were ultimately inspired by was how our own brains work, right? Right. So um, even though it's an oversimplification of what goes on in our brains, to some extent, you can say that when, say, data arrives at our retina, it then gets processed by a series of stages where each stage of the processing in our brains identifies ever more complex kind of abstract features of the image that we're looking at. So in the early stages of processing, your brain identifies various lines and edges. It then assembles that into an understanding of various joints and shapes. And then that gets fed into areas that identify more abstract object categories, et cetera, et cetera. And so the deep learning approach was inspired by this and said, we're going to have that same kind of like multiple stages of processing and per the first part of the philosophy, we're going to learn every part of that. And and that's what distinguished deep learning from some of the other, quote unquote, shallow approaches that were popular at the time that deep learning really took off, such as support vector machines and kernel machines uh, and related stuff. Those systems would have multiple stages of processing, but typically only the final stage of processing was where any learning occurred. Ah, And all the early stages of processing were hardwired by the programmer or followed some predetermined mathematical formula. Uh And... Uh, only the final stage was learned. Sort of a mashup of the old way and the new way. That's right, yeah. So really what distinguished deep learning was we're going to have these hierarchical processing stages and we're going to learn it all. Right. 
So what is the back propagation? Is that the learning at all part? You got it. So the back propagation of error algorithm is a learning algorithm which provides you with, to date, probably the best guarantee that anyone's ever been able to develop that every stage of your processing hierarchy is going to be optimized based on a given cost function. So that's just not biologically feasible, right? There's just not, couldn't possibly be that many connections. Is that the, the argument? Well, no, actually. So um, in fact, a big part of my research is that I believe that the brain also does this. I, I believe strongly that our brains optimize every stage of the hierarchy and they do so in a way that guarantees that the cost functions that we're optimizing are reduced by the virtue of the changes that happen in every part of our brains. Where we say that biologic that backpropagation is biologically infeasible is that backpropagation is really just a specific way of implementing something known as gradient descent. So gradient descent is the following idea. Let's say, so we've got this cost function as we've discussed, where the input is the current state of our system and the output is a measure of how well we're doing according to our learning goal. So the whole, the complete state, all of the neurons in, in the system. All of the neurons and all of the synapses. Okay. That's right. So we get, we take all of the neurons and all of the synapses that feeds into our loss function. We get out this number that measures how well we're doing on our learning task. Mm -hmm. the, gradient, the, the, the gradient descent approach says, okay, the way we're going to learn this system is we're going to try to estimate the slope of our loss function. So you can think of it, if you can, in kind of abstract terms, Think of the loss function as representing the height of a hill and your position in kind of uh, you know, GPS coordinates right. as representing the current state of your network right. that you're feeding into your loss function. Of course, this is a very high dimensional thing. Very high dimensional. Yeah. That's right. So you're not moving right. in a two-dimensional space, which is what you're doing when you're looking at GPS coordinates. But instead, you're moving in a, say, 10 million dimensional space. Right. So you've got this, this hill, effectively, in a 10 million dimensional space. And in the same way, like, let's say, you're, let, let's say you were a uh, blind person who was trying to descend a hill. Right. How could you do it? Well, one potential way of doing it would be to basically try to figure out just by feeling around a bit, which direction the slope was going uh, and to always just walk downhill. So local analysis sort of. Yes, exactly. A local analysis. Right. So if you always just look at the slope of, as to where you are and you go downhill, eventually you're guaranteed to converge to a local minima. At right. some point you're going to reach something that is the bottom of some valley. Right. Now, it might not be the absolute bottom of the hill, but you're, you're guaranteed to approach a, a local minima anyway. That's a great explanation yeah. of local minima, by the way. Good. <laughs> now, um, what's interesting is that, and this is the reason that um, gradient descent is such a powerful approach, 
is that if you consider a you know two-dimensional or three-dimensional landscape, it's very easy to get trapped in local minima that are very far from the global minima. And it's something that concerned many people when gradient descent approaches were first developed in artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Now imagine doing this same, you know, hill descending in a 10 million dimensional environment. In order for something to be a true local minima, you have to have it be a minima in 10 million directions. Yeah. And the probability of that happening is actually relatively low. Right. So people have done analyses to show that, in fact, what's interesting about gradient descent is the the higher the number of neurons you have, the more synapses you have, the less likely it is that you're going to get trapped in local minima, and thus the better it is to do gradient descent. Right. So what we've kind of discovered in, in, in AI is that, in fact, these gradient descent algorithms work better the larger the system, the more we scale it up. And these things, they're so high dimensional, it seems like you'd never really settle on anything if it's a dynamic system. Right. So in fact, what you can show is that basically, so, so sometimes what can happen to these algorithms is that they'll get trapped in what's called a saddle point. And that's where you've got a local minima in a few directions, but non-minima in other directions. Right. And if you happen to get trapped at exactly the middle point of this saddle, then your algorithm can get stuck. But people have worked out a variety of tricks to get past that. And and with those tricks in place, basically the only time that your algorithm ends up converging is when it gets pretty close to what we think is something like the global minima of the function, potentially. So this gradient descent, this finding, they're trying to find, you know, the best place to be in that in-dimensional space is what backpropagation enables because we can see the complete exactly. state space. Um, so now enter ideas about apical credit assignment and how that could work. Right, right. So to be clear, backpropagation is one possible way of doing gradient descent. And uh, what, what my lab has been proposing is that there, well, we know there are other ways of doing gradient descent. And I am personally convinced by the idea that our own brains do something like gradient descent. But there are a variety of reasons that the the specific details of backpropagation are just biologically infeasible. And and one of those things is that in order for backpropagation to work, you have to do a full pass forward through your hierarchy and then do another pass backwards through your hierarchy. And these need to be two separate things that you do. And there's no evidence that our brains engage in this sort of separate forward and backward pass. Right. Um, What's interesting, though, is that when we look at the physiology of the neurons in our brains, a lot of the feedback that arrives at uh, the neurons, the, the principal neurons of our forebrain, which are called pyramidal neurons, a lot of the feedback that arrives at a, at a pyramidal neuron is in its apical dendrite, which is a special dendritic compartment that these cells uh, have that uh, basically actually goes up towards the surface of the brain. Mm-hmm. So what my lab has been interested in is the idea that these apical dendrites might actually provide a way of integrating some of the feedback information that you need to do gradient descent with, without disrupting the ongoing processing that's happening 
in other parts of the cell. Right. And that in this way, you could estimate the gradient of your cost function without disrupting, without having to do separate forward or backward passes or disrupting the processing that's occurring. So, so instead of duplicating or, or doing the pass twice, you're adding an additional sort of computational unit to each neuron. That's right. Exactly. So if each neuron has its own little computational unit where it can calculate its gradient information, then you don't have to worry about these separate forward and backward passes. Right. So I, I just want to relate this to HTM because you know, that's my audience. You know, um, we talk all, a lot about uh, distal basal dendrites and it sort of having its own computation for a cell to become predictive or change its behavior. It's similar mm-hmm. to that, I think. So you know, this is something that I really like about the model that you guys are building at Numenta. Is I think that thinking about things in this way, where you say, okay what might this dendritic compartment be contributing to learning and how might that be a distinct computation is something that has rarely come into artificial intelligence, but which I suspect is critical to understanding what's going on in the brain. Because the, the, just when you look at the diversity of shapes of neurons in the brain, it's, it's pretty clear that there's, the brain is using these different dendritic compartments to do different computations somehow. Um, and so that's got to be part of the answer. Absolutely, yeah. So with these new ideas, how, do, how can we change current deep learning frameworks? Because this is sort of going to the core of what a, a neuron is, the definition of a neuron. How, how can deep learning change to incorporate these new ideas? Do you see a path forward? Yeah, so um, I think that probably the most important thing for deep learning people is in terms of incorporating some of these ideas is, is about hardware implementations potentially. Uh. Um, because, you know, the fact is that gradient descent works so well that one of the things it drives some people who are purists nuts. Gradient descent works so well that what we've seen over the last few years in AI is just an explosion of people saying, okay, well, I'm just going to define this cost function in this particular architecture, and then I do gradient descent through it, and voila, I have now got a new state of the art on some task. And um, to some extent, there's no reason to expect that that has to stop in the near any time in the near future it'll probably peter out at some point but as it stands we're still seeing continued improvements from just applying gradient descent to new problems and new cost functions and new architectures uh, five years ago i wanted an app that i could take a picture of a leaf and tell me what kind of plant it was that exists now because of gradient descent i imagine yes (laughs) that's right precisely precisely and so you know i think that we're where that it might end up failing a bit more though, is that if you're actually trying to, uh, you know, actually build a circuit that does in the hardware deep learning for you, not just, you know, simulating it on a GPU, then maybe you'd want to think about potentially having circuits where you've got different compartments where your gradient signals are being calculated or predictive signals like you guys have are being calculated. And this might end up being a more 
uh, a much more efficient uh, architecture for running deep learning systems. Do you think uh, there's software changes that can be made to current deep learning frameworks that that are in production right now that can incorporate these things? Or is this like going to be like the next phase of, of AI development that incorporates it? I think it would be more like the next phase. And as I said, I think this kind of stuff, I think there are a variety of things that neuroscience can still teach uh, deep learning as it stands. And we've seen some of that with respect to the incorporation of things like memory and attention and and other things. But really, um, I think in terms of some of these ideas about dendrites and how are they going to help? It, it's only going to be when we come to the sort of hardware systems that it might be useful. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I suspect that's why the brain did it as well, because right. it was having to implement it in hardware. And that it makes couldn't perfect just sense. pass around, you know, numbers to wherever it wanted to at any time. Yeah, that's a good insight there. Well, uh, this has been a great conversation, Blake. I have one more question for you. Um, are you yep. a theoretical neuroscientist? Yes, I think I am. That's great. It's hard to find those sometimes. <laughs> those <laughs> yes. People will admit that they're a theoretical neuroscientist. So it's nice to see uh, uh, some people claim that because I don't think there's anything wrong with it. <laughs> no, indeed. And I think that's that's part of the shift we, this is maybe a good place to come full circle on, is part of the shift we're seeing in neuroscience towards this broader perspective that incorporates things like machine learning and other parts of mathematics into neuroscience rather than just taking this very biological approach is that we need to shift to something that's a little bit more like physics right. in terms of having people who are theoreticians that are really just thinking deeply about the data that's coming in and trying to integrate it in order to generate mathematical models that can really guide our experiments and guide the hypotheses that we're generating. Especially with all the data that is right around the corner, these theories are going to be validated or invalidated pretty quickly. Yep, that's right. That's right. It's an exciting time to be in the field, honestly. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Blake. Uh, Thanks for being on the podcast. Yep. Thank you. It was a real pleasure, Matt. Thanks for listening to the Numenta on Intelligence podcast. For more information on our company or our mission, visit numenta.com.